0: Hello folks and welcome back to Platform Enterprise, a podcast for people who are pissed off with capitalism. I'm your host, Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and a writer. You can find my work over at platformenterprise.com where, most importantly, you can sign up to get these podcast episodes delivered straight to your inbox every week. On this week's show is economist Blair Fix. Blair works outside of the academy and mainstream economical thinking to produce theories about the relationship between power hierarchies and income inequality, why GDP is a crap measure of success for nations, and how resource distribution needs to be reorganized for a more sustainable future. We discuss all of this plus a lot more on this episode. He goes into a lot of what is wrong with neoclassical and, you know, bog-standard economics, uh, what they're getting wrong and how detrimental it is to humanities and the planet's health. If you want to support Blair's work and read his articles, it's all available on his website, Economics from the Top Down. He also has a Patreon where you can donate uh, to support the research that he's doing outside of the structure of the academy. All right, that's enough of me. Let's get into it. Thank you very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. Could you give a little bit of background of your like academic uh, history?
1: Yeah, it's a, well, it's a long story. I've been all over the place, but the short version of it is that I started out my life as a musician basically, or my, my university life as a musician. And I was a professional musician for a while, but kind of got burnt out. And along the way, I discovered economics, um, but not the usual route. Um, so I started reading books like on ecological economics, or mm. I remember a book called uh, When Corporations Rule the World by David Corton. So I was reading all these criticisms of mainstream economics, and I was getting really interested in it. This was in my late 20s, and then I decided I want to learn more about this. I want to do it in school, but I know I don't want to do it in a mainstream economics department, so what am I going to do? And at the time, I had moved to Toronto, and I discovered this program at York University uh, called Environmental Studies, and it was interdisciplinary, like you could literally do anything from poetry to like ecology in the same department. And I thought this is great. And there were a number of a few, um, ecological economists that I, uh, was familiar with. So I just jumped in and I did a master's degree in that. And then I ended up doing a PhD and, um, it was great because I was able to do exactly what I wanted. I took courses from, um, many, many different departments, like in political science and, um, all over the place. And then I ended up focusing, writing my dissertation on, um, kind of the intersection, this odd intersection between hierarchy and energy and income inequality. Uh, so
0: hierarchy energy and income inequality
1: yeah well i i mean it doesn't sound at all related and it would take me a little bit of time to explain but i never intended to do this it kind of just happened as i as i stumbled along so uh my research is very data driven so i kind of follow the data that i can find and and the data that I ended up finding pointed to this relation between hierarchy and income inequality and energy, which I never expected. And really, I don't think like anybody did. I've been finished now my PhD for a couple of years and have been um, working outside of academia. But then this year, I was lucky enough to get some more funding and I'm doing a postdoc again at York University. Although I never have to leave my bedroom because of
0: COVID (laughs) at university
1: quote unquote Yeah. yeah they send me a paycheck and that's the important thing
0: let's get into the um the hierarchy part of your work because i read through um a couple of abstracts and even one paper i started going through it but academic papers are long if you're not an academic um and yeah and the one that I had took particular interest in that I wanted to ask you about was the relationship between hierarchy and income inequality. And you argued sure. that the further up the hierarchy you are, um, the easier it is for, uh, i.e., further up the hierarchy and the more subordinates you control, the easier it is for you to earn money in a capitalistic setting. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, for. I should preface this, that in mainstream economics, there's no talk really of hierarchy at all. It's all about kind of efficient markets. And that's really odd because if you ask like the average person, what's their life experience, their work experience, they'd say, well, like I go to work in this company and I have a, a boss who, you know, he sets my pay. I don't set my pay. And my boss earns more than me and that person probably has a boss. And as you go up the ladder, they all earn more income. And this is just common knowledge, right?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And yet economists kind of totally ignore that. And I'm, I've always been blown away by that. So I, I, yeah, I started to dig into the data on, um, on hierarchy. And yeah, it's pretty clear as you, um, Basically, the more subordinates you have in a hierarchy, the more income you earn. And you can kind of plot it on a graph and draw a straight line through it. Well, and if,
0: if I can cut in here, the one thing I wanted to ask you about it is you know, just as you said, it's like it's common knowledge. You know, yeah, okay, the yeah. person above me earns more, but that person earns more. Like to me, when I was reading your abstract, I was like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, Serena. Of course, like, yeah, we know this. So yes. why, like, what do you mean that economists don't know this?
1: Well, they, they, they do and they don't. So the problem is, so they have kind of tunnel vision. The problem is that as soon as you start thinking about, oh, my boss makes more than me, the rank up from my boss, more again, well, then you start thinking that this isn't their income is not really about their personal attributes as it is. Uh, their position in the hierarchy. It's its from their job and their status. And it, once you start, basically economists have said, well, when I start thinking about that, I'm not doing economics, I'm doing sociology. So let the sociologists worry about that. Economics, pure economics is just about markets. Hmm. So I have to think about everything in terms of markets. And if you're saying, well, that makes no sense, Economics makes no sense. It's very ideological. Uh, So you have to ignore a large part of the world. You have to ignore the internal workings of big corporations because they don't use markets, really. They use um, a hierarchy. And then, you know, you can move up and down the hierarchy and you compete for status in the hierarchy. It's not really a market so much as once once you have that position, everything's kind of set. You have your income you take orders from above you give them below and it's totally different than a market Uh, and that's not a surprise for anybody who works there but economists don't think about that
0: just to clarify a little bit more then what are you saying then is for example somebody is hired from a job market into a company that provides a service or a good in a market but the internal machinations of that company do not work as a market. They work on the basis of this hierarchy.
1: Yeah, I mean, how it? I think so. I mean, the, classic, the classical market, as economists would understand it, is there can't really be any power relations. It's all equal. So we all participate all right. in okay. free exchange. And as soon as you have power relations, to me, that muddies this idea of a market. And I think economists... Like if you look at firms and economists do, then they would say, well, we have monopolies now. And it's not really a true market because one firm has a monopoly on on the market, so they have a lot of power. Well, if you look inside a company, there's a monopoly on who gets hired and who doesn't. There's no free exchange. Like if you were had to draw a job that was a true free market, you'd show up every day and you'd bid for every single item that you had to do. Like if I'm at a McDonald's, do I need to make a hamburger? I'll bid for this hamburger, right? And nobody does that. They, that's not the way firms work inside. There's a power structure. And yeah, there's a there's a competition between individuals to get hired into the firm and to move up and down it. So in a, there's kind of a market, but there's also this power structure that is imposing like top-down control. And to me, I don't like to, I don't find it useful to think of that as a market because that that same kind of power structure happens in feudalism, right? You have feudal mm-hmm. hierarchies, not really a market. You have um hierarchies in like uh, chiefly, uh societies with like simple chiefdoms. So, hierarchy to me is much more common than this more modern idea of market
0: Mm, okay i didn't realize that um mainstream economics said that there was no power hierarchy in Mm. the market i suppose now i understand why they would call it a free market and i know i've read a little bit about hayek and you know the godfather of neoliberalism um but i mean how can that still be like a thought today, you know, it's like, what, we're 40 years on from the postmodern revolution where they really revealed sort of the power structures of everything. How can Mm -hmm. economics still be behind?
1: Uh, Well, my answer is because it's an ideology. It's not designed to kind of study society as it exists. It's supposed to tell people how they ought to behave and justify the way businesses want to behave, right? So, the, the idea of the free market is that it's great for um, it's great for big business because big businesses say, "Look, I want free markets," and economists tell me that they're efficient. So, look, government, get out of my way! Don't regulate me because that leads to inefficiencies and let just let me do what I want to do. And we'll call that the free market, even though really what you're saying is let's give big business whatever power they want so it's mm. it's ideological by design um, economists um, don't want to discuss power but and I think that's a sign that it's a it's an ideology because you you really don't have to try very hard to see the evidence for for power all around us
0: yeah as you said certain things are just common knowledge uh, when yeah. you're a member of a, of a society that works in a free market model mm-hmm. um, isn't being studied.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and it is being studied by sociologists, um, anthropologists, like people like David Graeber, for instance, mm. really interested in hierarchies. He wrote a book called Bullshit Jobs, where he talks about how, you know, useless. He focuses really on middle management, where he thinks it's, you're basically just a cog in the wheel and most of what you do is just utterly useless as far as contributing to humanity. It's a funny book and I agree with a lot of it. Uh, So people like that have the freedom, uh, anthropologists, sociologists, they have the freedom to explore these ideas that kind of seem self obvious. Whereas mainstream economists, uh, they can't explore these ideas because they're unpublishable. So in economics, there's five, Big journals that if you want to have a professional career like any university you got to publish in these journals and they don't want to hear about like they'll just reject anything mm. like i've tried to publish in them for fun just to see what happened and they just give you a desk rejection and and that's it so these ideas are literally and steve keen told me this because he was he reviewed my he was the external um advisor or examiner for my dissertation.
0: Oh, he, amazing.
1: He came to Toronto and we we had a great time. And he said, Blair, you like, this is a great dissertation. These ideas are fantastic, but they're unpublishable in a mainstream journal. And he was right. I've found places to publish them, um, but always like, um, not obscure journals, but jour- certainly journals that among economists are not like prestigious. Uh, right, okay. and that's the way it is. That's how this kind of the status quo gets perpetuated. That's
0: another p- power hierarchy, isn't it?
1: well exactly that's the that's the hilarious thing is that to see like power hierarchies, you don't have to go any further than an economics department, and yet the economists sit there <laughs> with you know their tenured positions, not competing on the market but writing about the benefits of of free markets so it's all oh, very, large, um, yeah. uh, it's very funny when you think about it. Funny and, and also sad,
0: but funny, haha.
1: Yeah. But you know what? I, I feel like a lot of ideologies work that way. Like, uh, if you look historically at, at people who are closest to like the ruling class, they almost are, they're sycophants. Like, they just tell the ruling class what they want to hear. It doesn't matter if it makes any sense. And there's this kind of self selection that if you want to have that sort of status and prestige and economics is probably the most prestigious social science still if you want to have that prestige you have to spout this nonsense and i and the people who get there i think believe it
0: it's yeah. Kind of, yeah yeah it's People talk about echo chambers on social media, but echo chambers have been hanging about these prestigious places in the academy and elsewhere for a very, very, very long time, probably since the, you know, first uh, iteration of study.
1: Yeah. Well, one of my colleagues is actually um, from the UK. His name is Joe Francis, and he did a study of debate in these top five uh, five journals. So what he did is he just did a word search. He searched for the number of papers each year that popped up um, when he searched for like debate or reply or something like that, just to see if you know economists were actually debating ideas. And he saw this kind of rise and fall. So the, the peak of debate was in, I believe, the 19... 19- Fifties, right after World War One, and then since then, it's just completely dropped off. And you, oh if you think God. about it, what happened then is that people were basically debating Keynes. So, mm-hmm. like Keynesian economics became popular during World War, well, starting in the Great Depression and then kind of at a peak after World War II, and there was this kind of upheaval in the economics de- um, departments. They were debating neoclassical versus Keynesian ideas for a couple decades. And then the neoclassical economists basically completely won out, at least in academia. And then the debate just kind of died off. So uh, yeah, there's there's no debate in the economics departments, at least not about like big ideas. There's debates about like minutia, which is pretty boring and honestly, to the outside are just totally incomprehensible because it's Mm. very dense mathematics and honestly not worth paying attention to. Um, But yeah, so I I think economics is due for a revolution, um, but I don't think that it it will happen probably outside of universities is my guess, at least the start of it.
0: Well, I mean, you know, Steve is doing his work outside of an official institution. So are you. And certainly, like, I mean, Steve is hugely popular online. Um, Yeah. And I think for the younger generation, like Gen Z, um, they are very much going to be interested in the kind of economics that you guys are studying because it is the intersection of economics and climate change. It is how do we build uh, models of uh, working together or creating Mm -hmm. together that are beneficial not only to the planet, but also to human sociability and reflect our value system and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Rather than just looking at, you know, purely mathematical models.
1: I agree. There's a huge appetite for this sort of thing. And so I I write a blog that kind of uh, tries to popularize these ideas and I have no problem getting an audience on the blog. The hard part is translating that research into like a steady income. So mm. Steve, yeah, I mean, he's been d- able to do the Patreon thing with great success. Very few people have his high profile. So, mm. I mean, I am on Patreon and I have uh, a good amount of support, but it's not a full-time income yet. But so the, the, the hard part is not getting people to engage with the, these ideas. If If you write about them like Clearly, I think people, most people, are like yeah, like this is obvious. Number one, mainstream economics seems to be nonsense, and there's pretty simple mm-hmm. alternatives, although we don't have all the solutions for sure. So the hard part is is doing that while also being able to have a career. And, and at this point, your main options are work outside academia or uh, teach outside of an economics department. So. Many of my colleagues have been able to find work in political science departments, for instance. Right. Uh, very And various just kind of other departments where they're like, oh, yeah, you can do this research and there won't be any ideological clashes uh, because that's a problem in, uh, in uh, economics departments. Especially in, in North America and the, and the U.S., like ex- it's extremely... Uh, Neoclassical.
0: Right. So that's what you mean by an ideological clash.
1: Yeah. 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 And I mean, this thing kind of happens in other disciplines. Like, for instance, in physics, um, you know, there are certain departments where string theory is a big thing and other departments where mm-hmm. they don't like string theory. So there's always these kind of clashes at the boundaries of knowledge. Um, it's just kind of the way like humans are kind of we're tribal right so yeah these kind of um group clashes ideological clashes are kind of unavoidable in other disciplines they're fairly minor and and maybe don't affect your career hugely in economics like it's the main determinant i think of your career
0: not great there's a political scientist i follow on twitter god i can't remember his name now uh, he's at Amsterdam University and I remember oh, a couple of months ago, he tweeted, um, academics, can you name any, like one single revolutionary theory that actually came out of the academy? And it was just <laughs> <into> crickets, <laughs> yeah. absolute crickets, yeah. you, nobody yep. has written it, uh, certainly in the you know realm of political philosophy and probably philosophy, it wasn't done in the academy all of these big um, ideologies or thoughts that really push society forward. It was done at the Fringe.
1: Yep, definitely. Well, you could name so many of them. People like Spinoza, I think he was a a great philosopher, I think made his living making lenses, like grinding glass. (laughs) Einstein did his his most um, seminal work when he was a patent clerk. Uh, there was
0: there's a famous poet who was a clerk as well. He worked at the Bank of England his entire career. He wrote mm. the waste T.S. Eliot.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Nietzsche was never at a yeah. university. Marx? Yes, Marx for sure. Essentially a columnist.
1: Well, I mean there's this is kind of how big institutions work. They're very by their nature very conservative. So if you want to rock the boat, you almost have to do it outside of a university. There's There's some people, I mean, there are exceptions, um, to that, to that rule. Sometimes people just lock out and kind of often they squeak in where like they get to tenure when people think that they're kind of, um, very conservative. And then they change directions like, um, oh, I can't remember the author's name, but there's a famous paper called what do bosses do? And this, the author had tenure at Harvard and he had, um, convinced his colleagues that he was a neoclassical economist. And so he had gotten tenure publishing neoclassical papers. And then he got tenure and boom, he wrote this radical paper called, what do bosses do? And basically the point, his point was look, bosses exploit workers. So it was a very radical paper. And from then on, he was like a pariah just uh, shunned by the rest of the economics, uh, department. Uh, in harvard but he Mm. but he was stuck there so like my my friend jonathan nitson says he he's also at york he says i'm a a nail in the institution with the head pulled off so like they can't get me out oh okay so there's that route but uh, yeah you got to get there first
0: but the thing is as well you know we don't really have time for that if we look at kind of You know, Steve Keen was on the podcast, and he talked about how economics, mainstream economics, is one of the driving forces in climate change. And everyone knows, twenty thirty is that's the year. That's the year big changes have to have happened. By you know, we've got less than a decade. We don't really have time for our radical thinkers to play nice, get tenure, and then come out with um, their research.
1: I agree. So that's why I think that uh, I think these big changes, if they're going to happen, will come. Probably outside of the big institutions, mm. from from the bottom up. So that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm kind of doing. I'm not uh, I'm not really being career minded. I'm trying to publish ideas that I think are important.
0: Let's talk about yeah. some of those ideas. I have uh, my favorites written down here. Sure. Um, can you talk about how you've established that GDP is a flawed metric?
1: Oh well, there's so many reasons. <laughs> the the most there's the most well known is that um number one, GDP only adds things, so um never subtracts anything. So if there's a hurricane and it destroys like a coastline, then we have to rebuild everything. Well, all of that is just money spent and it gets added to GDP, so it it just looks everything looks good.
0: I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, there's nothing negative. There's no negative spending in GDP. It's always positive. Um, They assume that everything, all money spent on new products is is good for the economy. So, you know, things like making guns or any number of things that are probably bad that we don't want to spend a lot of money on, they just all get added to GDP. So that's probably the most well-known critique of GDP, why it's just not a good metric for um, human well-being. There's also the fact that it doesn't include um, unpaid work, right? So Mm. um, any kind of household activity that is pretty essential to life, you know, like raising children and socializing them, none of that gets counted. Uh, and so that's another very well-known critique. And then the third critique is a little bit more technical, a little bit less well-known, and it has to do with prices. So um, there's two types of GDP, right? There's something called nominal GDP, where you just basically add up everything that, that's produced, all the goods and services, and that's the value of GDP. But the problem is that gets affected by inflation. And so economists say, well, we'll just adjust for inflation, and then you get real, what they call real GDP, and that's supposed to measure the growth of production. Well, the problem is that you can't actually make that adjustment, at least not objectively, because prices, a lot of people don't know this, they go in all sorts of different directions. So, for instance, over the last, I don't know, three decades, college textbooks have probably tripled in prices, same mm. with tuition. Whereas other commodities like uh, electronics, consumer electronics, they've gone way, way down in prices. So there's, because the prices are going in all different directions, there's, um, there's not one thing called the rate of inflation. There's many rates of inflation okay. and you have to weight them when you calculate real GDP. So economists have a bunch of tools that they choose, but they're all kind of arbitrary. So when we, there are different choices for weighting um, price inflation. And when you make these different choices, um, you get different values for the growth of GDP. So I kind of did a thought experiment in one of my papers where I looked at all the options, um, For calculating real GDP, U.S. real GDP since 1945, just based purely on different ways to adjust for inflation. And I found like you'd get like a, I think it was a 30% difference in GDP growth. Uh, So that's the kind of the most technical side of it is that it's not even really well defined, the growth of real GDP, because, because it's based on an unstable unit, really. Prices are unstable. And they change, they give it like a ruler. If I was send a bunch of students out to measure, um, you know, the height of a, a staircase, and but their rulers kept changing all the time after each measurement, they would have no idea what the correct um, uh, measurement was. And that's kind of what happens with GDP. Um, and then kind of the big picture argument is that GDP uh, assumes that producing more stuff is good for mm. people right and but it's suicidal in the long run you we can't have we can't pump out more and more stuff use more and more resources forever that's impossible and there's no evidence that it's actually good for people right all the evidence points to the fact that you know after if we go from like being basically living subsistent uh like subsistent living um, kind of up to, I don't know, what where Cuba is, basically. Not rich, but not poor. That's where all the gains in um, well-being come in. And then past that, really, there's no gain. So even though the U.S. is, like, on paper, I don't know, five or ten times richer than Cuba, um, you're, the average American, I don't know if they're any happier, but they I think mm-hmm. they die younger than the average Cuban often have worse health. So I think the goal long term if we care about sustainability is to try to use fewer resources. So I'm a big fan of degrowth and then focus on improving human well-being. And and really you don't need GDP for any of that. So I think it, we should just throw it in the garbage, forget about it.
0: How can we measure these things through economics, because I think one of the interesting things about economics is that it is in the social sciences, which gives it this freedom, um, to be interdisciplinary and Mm -hmm. to pull from, um, pull multiple tools from different departments, essentially. So do you think it would be possible to create a new kind of economics where what we're measuring is, you know? value systems or
1: Well, I think people are already working on that. Um have you heard of donut
0: economics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're running it in um, Amsterdam.
1: Yeah, so I think the uh it's a Kate Grayworth. Yeah. yeah. So, uh I mean, I think that's a really great idea and what's great about it is that they don't focus on any single number or measure. They have a whole bunch of them and um and really, that's the idea is you want to have a lot of different metrics, some of them measuring bad things like pollution and I don't, resource depletion, keeping track of those, and then other things measuring good things like education and life expectancy, health. And um, you want to keep track of them, but then, then basically the only way to decide what what you want to do and whether you're meeting goal, your goals is through democracy, right? Because every person has different opinions about what they want out of life, what's good, what's bad. And economists assume that they can kind of objectively kind of aggregate all of these preferences into one single metric. But that's pretty dubious. The whole point of democracy is that um, you can't do that and that each person should have their say. So I think that, I think we should, economists' job, in my opinion, and other social scientists, is to measure these things that they think are important to keep track of. And then if we have responsible politicians, which is a big if, or, or you know, like meaningful elections, and people will debate these issues and then kind of set policy to, to meet whatever goals come out of that and, And it's very, it's going to be very messy, but I I think at least like this idea of donut economics is a great start because it just kind of ignores this obsession with GDP. And then, Mm. and it has this beautiful way of, in a circle, plotting all these different things, which is, I think, quite innovative.
0: Mm. Are there any other um, templates or uh, policies that you would like to see rolled out? on an international basis that you think would be helpful?
1: Well, there's there's so many. I, um, I think that honestly, the fight, uh, so the biggest problem we face is definitely um, climate change, but I personally work less on climate change policy directly as I do kind of more general uh, welfare, policy. So if that makes like, basically the idea is if there's this kind of plutocratic class running everything, you can't make meaningful democratic decisions about, about anything, whether it's Mm -hmm. climate change or anything else. So kind of at the root of solving all these problems is having a fairly equal society. So to me, I, I focus on, on that kind of side of things is Cutting down the power of the plutocratic class. And there are many, many ways to do that. I mean, from history, we know what works. Um, taxing oh, the rich. with their
0: heads.
1: Yeah, that works too. Yeah.
0: Now that I condone that. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, where was I? Oh.
0: You were on tax the rich.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and just you know, cutting tax havens. <laughs> these were all. I mean, these are not actually very um, revolutionary policies because they were things that governments did 50 years ago, right? Yeah. Very high to- top marginal tax rates, ma- making it very difficult to move large sums of money around.
0: Sorry to interrupt, but. Yep. To me, what's kind of interesting about all of that debate and all of the different things that could be done, um, like at the moment, uh, there's that talk about introducing a 15% global tax rate, which I think is really, really great. Um, you know, AOC wore her tax the rich dress to the Met Ball, yeah. which was odd, if you know we're being honest. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, this is a podcast for people who are pissed off with capitalism. Like, capitalism gets a lot of uh, is attention nowadays but i think this thing about power hierarchies and mm-hmm. the power hierarchies that we see in other uh, social primates or animals mm-hmm. um and the history of power hierarchies i mean surely that is what we need to be addressing with economics in sure. order to not just create a yeah. new system in which a plutocratic class emerges once more because, yeah. you know, well, yeah. because of that, the power hierarchy. Well, yeah, well,
1: I'll uh, let me go into that. But I should say like the um, in particularly in the U.S. in de- democratic politics, there's this tendency to look at each new progressive leader as they're going to be the savior. So it was Obama. And I don't think Biden, many people ever thought Biden was going to be the savior, but like Bernie Sanders. Um, And that, I mean, that rarely works out unless there's a big grassroots level movement forcing the leaders um, to do what uh people want them to do to enforce um democratic or, or i should say progressive policies like that's what happened in the great depression there was a huge in the us a huge um labor movement a progressive movement that basically forced roosevelt to enact um progressive policies and and so the bigger picture is that this has like this idea of grassroots uh, action i think has pretty a pretty deep basis in human history so there's an anthropologist named christopher bohm who went into the amazon and uh, observed hunter gatherer tribes there and people always assumed like well they're they're just they they are egalitarian hunter gatherers and that's just the kind of the default and he said well this act, that idea doesn't actually make sense because if you look at our our other primate cousins like chimpanzees and um um uh, gorillas they're actually pretty brutal uh they're not a egalitarian like there's fierce um dominance hierarchies mostly competition for mates and there's a lot of species like this and that's kind of what you often find in in mammals is that they're not very Oof. they're not very nice as a group mm. They kind of tolerate each other, and but there's this fierce competition among males. So anyway, uh, Christopher Baum said, well, why, like, so the default is not egalitarianism. We, I think we have, um, he said, social mechanisms for meaning, maintaining egalitarianism. And when he looked at these tribes, what they would do is, um, he called it reverse dominance. So anyone, anytime there was somebody who was kind of, puffing up their chest and trying to get some power or aggrandizing themselves, the rest of the tribe would ridicule them, basically. Yeah. And, it, and sometimes murder them in, in the extreme, right? And he called this reverse dominance. So it's, you could call it accountability or whatever you want to call it. It's It's the bottom, the people without power, ganging up on people with power. And I think... That kind of principle works all the way to the present, right? Whenever people get power and and they're unaccountable, like you have absolute dictators, absolute monarchies, you can never rely on you know a nice person to do the right thing. People are corrupted by power, almost without exception. And the way to check it is to make them accountable to have these grassroots bottom-up movements that say, force rulers basically to act nicely. So that's one thing that unions do, right? Mm-hmm. They're basically the all the fish at the bottom of the hierarchy getting together, and together they have collect power to, um, number one, negotiate better pay and better working conditions for themselves. And the consequence of that always is that then they limit um, the worst tendencies at the top. It's kind of a two-way street. If you get better policies for people at the bottom, you always then limit the power and the uh, despotism of uh, people at the top. So what's happened, like in the last forty years with Reagan and Thatcher, is when you crush unions, you crush this kind of reverse dominance, and then people, the, <laughs> the people at the top, then just just do what they always do, and which is try to. Do what's best for them.
0: That's an interesting point. Um, because something I only found out a couple of months ago are like Nordic countries like Sweden don't Mm -hmm. have a legal minimum wage. What they have are incredibly powerful trade unions Mm -hmm. who every two years get together to negotiate with companies what the minimum wage should be for each kind of role or or um yeah.
1: And on that like related, I'm told that in Japan um they also I don't know if they have unions per se but they have this very strong culture where it's just not accepted that the CEO will pay himself an exorbitant amount mm. like they, 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 it's expected that everybody is going to work like 12 hours a day so they have yeah. this, kind of yeah. these other problems but it's just not acceptable for for upper management to earn anything like what Americans earn so there's That's many roots to it.
0: You could argue that both of those are forms of then reverse dominance. Um, because Sweden, certainly a place that we think of as extremely egalitarian. And mm. Japan, I mean, that is the culture of, and I'm sorry if this is a stereotype, I've never been there, but of respect and of social order.
1: An obligation mm. too. Like um I think CEOs feel like they're oblig they have an obligation to their workers, whereas and I think that was once true in the U.S. Certainly, there was a, there was a famous interview with Robert McNamara, who was he he became the defense secretary of the U.S. in the '60s, I think. And uh, but before that, he had been uh, a CEO, I think, of a uh, maybe Ford or General Motors. I don't remember. Mm. Um, and they asked him, you know, like. He, he, he had, at the time, like when he was a, a CEO, was making 10 times the average worker, whereas today the same CEO would probably make three, 400 times the average worker. Yeah. And they said, well, why don't you pay yourself more? You could. And he said, because it, it would be unacceptable, socially unacceptable. I have a responsibility. So that was the culture at that point in America. And for many reasons, in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., that culture changed uh, and now, you know, uh, greed is good and CEOs are in <laughs> it for, them, for themselves. Make,
0: American, make America greedy again.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. Trump is just like the, the epitome of that mindset, right? He thinks yeah. that, uh, whatever is good for him is, is good for everybody else. And that's, that's neoclassical economics in a nutshell, really, because if I'm a selfish bastard somehow, that will be good for the whole society. Uh, it's kind of magical thinking, but
0: yeah, completely, completely. I mean, you would think it, oh, do you know what? No, I can't even get my, my brain around it. Like I remember reading about a Hayek's journey to, um, what we call neoliberalism and just be like, bro, come on. Like you, you skipped like the, there's, there is literally magic in your logic. You skipped a couple of steps. Like the Mm -hmm. fact that markets won't be in, you know, markets will just provide what people need. It's like, oh, who are these magic markets? Are they beings with a capital B? You know, there's humans in there.
1: It has always been magical thinking. The problem for in economics is that it's wrapped up. it's, it's, It's absurd when you state it in kind of plain language and you state the assumptions about human behavior and, and about institutions, it's always absurd. It always has been, but they never do that plainly. If you read economics textbooks, it's always wrapped in unclear language, in mathematics mm-hmm. a lot of the time. And so you're like, if you want to try to understand it, you have to wade through all these mathematics. And to me, that's a waste of time. You just have to look at the assumptions and the assumptions are just crazy.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things. That, um is desperately unfair and quite surreal about the period of time we live in, which is that most people understand nothing about the majority of driving forces in their life. You know, when I think about how much of my life is done from my laptop, i've I've got no idea about technology, I have a very bare understanding of economics, um anything useful, essentially about how the world works, you know, that's not what what we're taught to think about or how to think. And these subjects seem deliberately, it's a bit conspiracist, but deliberately inaccessible.
1: Well, I think with economics, that's certainly the case. They don't want their assumptions to be visible. And Mm. that's a very old critique. That's like a century old critique. In other places, though, I think it's kind of a more general problem with having a complex society is that no one person can know everything sure, and it's just completely impossible. So the more complex things get, you kind of have to have your own silo of knowledge. Mm. Um, and that, that's kind of unavoidable, but for these big, um, big, big problems, then you need, um, um, kind of big picture thinkers to come along and synthesize these things. So I just watched a great video by a YouTube presentation by Nate Hagins, who's like a biophysical uh, ecological economist. And so this presentation, God, it's like three hours long. It's a summary of his thinking probably for the last 20 years. And he just goes through a huge number I think it's thirty five myths about our society and but he starts out by basically saying that in most of academia or just you know anywhere in the business world there's silos of knowledge and it kind of has to be that way because there's very technical knowledge that that some people have to have but for these big problems like climate change and biodiversity loss and really everything that we're dealing with in the twenty first century, this kind of siloed knowledge is a huge problem because nobody nobody sees the big picture and nobody can talk to each other and connect the dots. So yeah, like I, I see myself not really as a specialist. I I'm more of a generalist, so I try to connect the dots between these various
0: uh, fields yeah.
1: and various problems.
0: I think it's necessary. Steve was talking about that too, about um, the fact that this essentially obsession with specialization um, is no longer helpful, given the immensely complex problems that we're up against in our world today, like climate change and how that interacts with the economy and how that interacts with well-being, and you know all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff.
1: <laughs> I agree. I agree.
0: <laughs> There's uh, one more of your theories I want to ask you about. Sure. Um, which was, ugh, I can't remember the title now, but it was about resource distribution. An evolutionary uh, theory of resource distribution. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You want to? Uh,
1: so, I'm a big uh, fan of... Uh, a theory called multi-level selection. So see if I can find a good way of tying this into to economics. Um, first of all, this ties into the idea of free markets. So economists um, come at the problem by saying that selfishness is good. What, if it's good for the individual, it's good for society. And therefore, free markets are the best way to go. Well, in evolutionary theory, kind of, it's a big picture theory of evolution. There's an idea that there's the total opposite of that, which is that typically what happens as um, organisms or groups or whatever you're looking at really get more complex, they suppress um, selfishness or selfish tendencies within them. So let me kind of give you the big... This is what I did in that paper, and I'll try to give you the five-minute synopsis of that of how this of how human societies tie into kind of the big picture of evolution. So, mm-hmm. um, if you take um, the cells in our body, um, what they are really is uh, cooperating single-celled organisms. Now they. They don't look like that now because humans are very, very complex. But life started out as a single-celled, uh, as single-celled life. And somehow these cells had to group together and start cooperating. So the idea with multi-level selection is that that can't work unless you suppress um, selfishness among cells. So sometimes we fail to do that. And we call that cancer, right? So what happens with cancer is that cells mutate. And they start to grow uncontrollably. Now, among single-celled organisms, we would just call that winning, right? If a group of bacteria just start to grow and displace everything else, they won. That's, that's what evolution <laughs> is, right? right okay. But it doesn't work that way in your body. We, your body only works by regulating all the cells collectively. And when cancer comes along and grows uncontrollably, that's a big problem so you have an immune system that usually fights off cancer and it suppresses um selfishness what we would call selfishness among cells so i think the same thing happens with um humans so we're and so the starting point for humans is now the group humans are a social species um so everything we do is kind of within groups. So we within groups try to suppress competition inside the group. So we cooperate and then we compete between groups. So economists start off with this idea that the basis for society is market competition. Well, I I think it's not at all. I think I read a book by Peter Churchin where he argues, no, it's actually pretty much war. The basis for human society is is small groups who cooperate in between. Uh, themselves, so suppress um, competition inside themselves, inside the group, and then fight viciously basically between each other. And if you want to, one way to read history then is as this kind of gradual expansion of the group. So whereas we used to have these very small warring tribes, then some of them got bigger, and they continued to fight amongst themselves, but inside they didn't. And you can kind of think of the expansion of of uh, empires that way, like they suppress competition inside. So I think markets, really, the proper way to look at markets is they're actually a way to suppress competition within the group, right? Economists don't think that, it, that if I want um, a car, that the best way to get it is to steal it. So to not steal it is actually suppressing competition. So... We have a market imposed by the government where instead of just stealing stuff, right, like we could, we agree to negotiate and exchange money. So I think um, the market is a way that society suppress competition. And then I think inside companies, there's even more suppression of competition. And that's mostly through hierarchy, which we already talked about. So that that paper was kind of the reverse of Economics. So, if economics is looking at how competition is good for everything, this was looking from the big picture of evolution of how actually it's the opposite. It's always about um, kind of more complex organization by suppressing competition.
0: Yeah, um, definitely. But, I mean, come, I, but yeah, again, this is one of those things that just feels instinctually right to a novice. Um, but surely civilization wouldn't be where it was without um, collaboration over competition, essentially.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I think that makes sense when you look at the big picture. But again, economists, uh, number one, they don't study history,
0: <laughs> they yeah. study
1: fairy tales. And and so they, didn't, they don't think about this way. So they get wrapped up in these abstractions about markets and things like that. But when you look at the actual, if you look at human history, what comes first is is uh, cohesive groups and wars between groups. And then inside the groups, trade and markets, money, and um, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's my favorite way. I like to use this theory of multi-level selection, which is that there are different units of natural selection from the group to the individual, to genes, all the way down. It's a very like holistic theory of evolution and people have started to apply it to studying cultural evolution. And I'm, I'm big into that. I think it's really interesting and I think it's a nice way of unifying natural sciences, biology with um, the social sciences and a really great way to avoid the myopia of economics, right? Like so much of economics is about what's going on now or at the most, What's happened in the last hundred years no, not not mm. the last ten thousand hundred thousand years, so
0: it could be like a, a framework then for um a regulated resource distribution that achieves uh, you know the requisite harmony with the planet's resources uh, as a form of multi level selection
1: yeah well um so there's a couple of people doing really interesting work on this. Um, David Sloan Wilson is one. He's an evolutionary biologist and he's worked with an, a famous economist who actually is one of the few heterodox economists to win the Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, Eleanor and she she was um, into common uh, pool resources. So she looked at traditional societies so uh, who were able to manage their resources in common and she, like, there's this myth in economics that that can't happen, that there's this tragedy of the commons that mm. um, left to their own devices, people will just take what they can and destroy, use up natural resources. And in a, and in some cases that was true, but she, she, this um, economist, she looked at all the conditions that seem to always happen when, um, when societies effectively manage common pool resources. And so David, Sloan Wilson has kind of categorized them all, and I um, I can't remember them off the top of my head, but it's basically you need a list of rules that um, that people have to follow, and you you have to have organ oversight. So in other words, you can't just let people compete. There has to be consequences when people overuse resources, um, oversight, and all these kind of things. Basically, some type of government, even if it doesn't have to be centralized per se but there have to be Mm. rules um and i think the same thing holds for these big um kind of global problems just that the scale is so much bigger that it makes organizing at that scale so much harder but i think the lesson is that the idea that it's pretty common sense we're not going to solve climate change using free market solutions it's it's not
0: going to happen Mm. Uh, so, but then the issue with like the complexity of organizing on that scale, I think for me it brings it back round to power again. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about um, uh, monopolies, you know, Google, yeah. Amazon, Facebook, and they have they have too much power, and it's genuinely frightening. And what do we do about them? And is it is there going to have to be an international political body that can take them head on, where they they can disappear to another jurisdiction? And then you think about how frightening that would be. Yeah. <laughs> so that, like, oh, how do we fix things without essentially creating um, a power vacuum?
1: Yeah, well, it's a difficult... Uh, the answer is that we don't really know the answer. But mm-hmm. I, I don't think any of these problems will be solved until in People are so pissed off about them that everybody wants to solve them. So like we're kind of getting there with climate change, right? This last summer in, in the U S and Canada was crazy. Like half the, the Western coast, it seemed like was burning down. So, um, climate change is not so abstract. So these, they can't be abstract problems. People have to feel like they have a, uh, impact on their daily life. And I think we're also getting there slowly with income. Like, I think we've reached kind of hopefully the peak of plutocracy. So my, I hope that we're going to kind of climb back down a bit. I could Mm -hmm. be wrong, but prefer to be optimistic. Um, But it can't be like an abstract academic argument and it can't be just kind of a top-down solution. It has to be people like clamoring for, for change and, and, uh, I think we're getting there slowly, but it's a group movement, right? So everybody who's talking about these issues is part of the discussion and, uh, raising awareness about them.
0: I think one of the problems with group movements though is their very nature, which is once you're in them, it's really hard to see how anybody could think differently, you know, for. Me and my social circle, climate change is a huge thing that we talk about and we worry about, mm-hmm. um, and it's become it's become so politicized because it's 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 really really difficult to remember sometimes that there are people that don't have access to this kind of information or haven't been introduced to it, um, and simply you know believe differently. So yeah. The very support that you get from a group that drives a movement is kind of also what impinges it, in a sense, because you forget how to speak. You forget that there is another side, and when you remember it, it's because they've said something that pisses you off.
1: (laughs) I think that's unavoidable. I I don't know that it's even desirable to try to avoid it. In my opinion, usually what happens is there's always this kind of um, group tension, but it only really gets unfortunately it gets resolved when one group wins Wins. yeah, (laughs) and and then at that point kind of everybody thinks that way Uh, and so there's not an issue that that's what happens in science you know the old guard basically they literally die off they rarely (laughs) you know they're rarely convinced by new ideas They, Mm. they just die off and the people who then are come up and fill those positions think differently unfortunately that takes a long time to happen and we're in a big rush right now, but it's kind of the only way change can happen. So if we have a, a generation of people like my parents generation are probably the richest, um, generation of humans that will ever live. And, Uh. and so all these were like, uh, whereas they kind of, Lived their life and then at the end of their careers started hearing the problems that uh, humanity was causing. And, and it was kind of like an annoyance, right? Like, well, mm. damn it, I paid my dues and I just want to retire and, um, and not pay attention. Whereas the next generation, like my generation, pretty much heard about these problems from the beginning. Yeah. And so it was no big surprise, which is not to say older generations, like, can't. Uh, change like my mom is a big environmental activist and pretty involved with these types of things. But uh, um, I th- I don't know. I'm interested to see as uh, there's this old saying that as uh, people age and kind of become the ruling generation, then they become more conservative and yeah. That has tend to happen in the past, but I don't know. I hope that it doesn't happen now, given the scale of all the problems.
0: Well, I mean, if you've got nothing to hold on to, then there's no real point in being conservative.
1: (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where I'm at. I've got nothing to lose. So
0: (laughs) So we're stirring a lot as well. (laughs) Right. Blair, um, thank you so much for your time today. This has been very interesting. Um, oh, my pleasure to wrap up, is there someone you would like to platform?
1: Well, a few people come to mind. Um, uh, well, I mentioned, um, Joe Francis, who did this research on debate in economics. Um, he's a, he's a, um, another guy who does research outside of academia. I think he's actually earning a living now in Wales as a farmer. Uh, But he's got a PhD, I think, from, I think, the London School of Economics.
0: Wow.
1: Uh, Great researcher. He's doing a book right now on the history of the slave economy in the United States and how that's kind of uh, driving modern trends. So really, I think he'd be really interesting to talk to. Um, Well, I'll I'll list off more people in the UK. Um, Sandy Hager he does uh really interesting research on uh corporate power and then kind of my mentor is um, Jonathan Nitzan who is he's in Toronto and he's uh he's a political economist who they were he, he together with uh Bickler wrote a book called uh, Capital as Power so mm-hmm. if that sounds radical it is very radical. they basically argue that um, that capital um, stock markets basically are kind of quantified power. and uh, I think it's um, in my mind it's I don't want to call it the the marx the Marx's capital of the 21st century. Because it's very different, very critical of Marx in a lot of ways. But in my mind, it's the it's the radical book on political economy of the twenty first century. It kind of totally rethinks how we should understand capitalism starting with what it looks like today, not whereas a lot of Marxists, for instance, start with what it looked like two hundred years ago when Marx was writing. that it's very different today. So why should we take that that starting point? Yeah.
0: All right, fantastic. Blair, thank you again for your time today and for all these f- fascinating ideas. Where can people support you um, on Patreon and find your work?
1: Uh, so if you Google Blair Fix Patreon, um, my account will pop up. And then I blog at, my blog is called Economics from the Top Down. Uh, so that, that's basically where I publish everything now. Uh, from like very informal blog posts to like big research papers. It's all there. And there's a link to my Patreon from there.
0: All um, right. So, Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rachel. Hi, everyone. You can find Blair's work over at economicsfromthetopdown.com, where you can have access to all of his ideas and his research. And you can support him by donating money to his Patreon over at patreon.com slash BlairFix. Plug time for Platform Enterprise. <laughs> you can subscribe to this podcast on any podcasting app and also over at platformenterprise.com where you'll get an email every time an episode is released. And that's also where you can choose a paid subscription if you have the means to support this podcast. I'm extremely grateful to all of you for the support that you give every week. Uh, it's amazing to have your feedback on the site and in my inbox. And I actually see these episodes kind of starting to do the rounds online, which is really, really cool. Um, if there's someone that you would like me to interview or a theme that you would like me to cover, please don't hesitate to get in touch reach out to me at rachel at platformenterprise.com. All right, everyone. Thank you again. See you next week.